You're listening to Preserves, a Manitoba food history podcast, exploring the rich, flavorful history of Manitoba food and the people who make it, sell it, and eat it. From the packing table to the dinner table, from restaurant specials to grandma's secret recipes, we consider the cultural, social, and commercial aspects of Manitoba food and what it means to us. I'm your host, Kent Davies. As per usual, I'm joined by food and business historian, Professor Janice Thiessen. What's in the pantry for us today, Janice? Today we'll learn about a remarkable initiative in our province to recover and reimagine Indigenous cuisine for the 21st century. Nice. I know of a few Indigenous-owned restaurants. One of them's actually right down the street from the UW. You mean Feast? Yes. I love their food. Me too. Their bison chili is really good. And their Saskatoon bannock. Their moniker is Modern Dishes Rooted in First Nation Foods. So their approach is to make popular contemporary foods like tacos and pizza, but using ingredients like bannock and bison. The result is just mouth-watering. That is a delicious approach. But today's podcast episode is a little different. How so? It's not about substituting traditional Indigenous ingredients in recipes. Instead, it's about a work of historical imagination. You're talking about our visit with Chef Steve Watson. Yes, That was an amazing experience. And meal. Our listeners are in for a treat. I think so too. Bannock. Often seen as traditional food, but it's really a post-European contact invention. White flour, white sugar, salt, baking powder. These weren't ingredients in use by North American indigenous peoples before European contact. But what would Indigenous food look like today if its development hadn't been disrupted by colonialism? Chef Stephen Watson, an instructor at Winnipeg's Commonwealth College, is exploring this question. Watson is from Peguis First Nation. He was a finalist for the CBC Manitoba Future 40 Award in 2016. His grandmother is related to Senator Murray Sinclair, who chaired the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. He has worked professionally as a chef at some of Winnipeg's most popular restaurants, including Who's on First, 529 Wellington, and Brazen Hall. We're at Commonwealth College, where Watson has invited us to his classroom kitchen to sample some of his creations. So what are you making for us today? So we have um, two things going on. I think I wrote down uh, the bison that we do, but I got some bread here too, just We've been doing some testing on it, so uh, we're going to try it out today. So what we are doing is we call it 1491, also known as pre-contact or time immemorial. But what it is is basically any ingredients found only here in this part of the world 500 or more years ago, 1491 or prior. That said, within reason. So we're not necessarily going to get salmon in the west coast or up north and getting some seal or whale or anything like that, right? So. Within reason, you know, if, if we're here, where we are now, where could we go over the next few months? And we're east, west, north, south, whatever. So try not to call, use the borders, because uh, borders didn't exist either, right? So, so basically what we deal with here, a lot of bison, a lot of deer, a lot of elk, catfish, pickerel, uh, grains and, and fruits and different other vegetation that was here 500 or more years ago. Chef Watson prepares a tasting meal for us of bison, slow-cooked with berries, onions, and some tobacco. He serves it with parsnips roasted in honey and potatoes roasted in duck fat. And then, a lot of people don't realize how sweet parsnips are. He also prepares some bread, which he carefully shapes into a Métis symbol, the infinity sign. Here we have a bread made of uh, whole grains, 
some wild rice, uh, dried berries and uh, hazelnuts, a little bit of honey and uh, some duck fat. The bread is made with neither refined white flour nor yeah. yeast and is served with a cranberry onion jam. Yeah, grab a spoon. Um, yeah, looking good. With technological developments in refrigeration and transportation, we are able to eat foods from all over the world, in season and out. That culinary bounty can blunt our awareness of the diversity and deliciousness of the many local ingredients available to us here in Manitoba. Restricting ingredients to those available before European contact presents some culinary challenges for Chef Watson. No canola oil, as it didn't exist in 1491. Instead, Watson uses fat from ducks and bison. Duck fat in particular has a delicious flavor, unlike bear fat, which he dislikes. The sauce he serves alongside the bison is not thickened with flour or cornstarch. Instead, he takes his time reducing it, transforming two liters of stock into a quarter liter of intense flavor. But other contemporary ingredients are not so easily replaced with pre-contact equivalents. The main challenge we're finding is not so much the ingredients, what was used, what can we do with it, but uh, lack of salt. That's the big one. We could, you know, no processed sugar, no processed uh, white flour, no processed fats like lard or anything like that, no baking powders, uh, baking soda, that kind of stuff. Those we can find ways around. We can't find a way around salt yet. One potential salt substitute is ashes. But using ash not only adds saltiness, but bitterness. But is salt really necessary? Is the need, the desire to find a salt replacement because that's a way of trying to make this food palatable to folks who have for centuries grown up with that taste? It is, yeah, and it's, uh, at times it's a battle because there are things, one of the pros of what we do is that it actually fits a lot of modern diets. Like, and I mean diets as in, and uh, like to lose weight, to get fitter. Uh, the keto diet, it fits, because a lot of meats, it fits the uh, paleo diet, because, well, it is paleo, it is. <laughs> Paleo, right? So um, it fits a lot of those things. Generally, a lot of stuff we do is low carb, high protein, all those things. So it fits a lot of trendy diets. It fits a lot of old school diets. It fits at the, uh, the elders who can eat salt. There's a lot of heart disease on reserve and whatnot, so it fits there well. Watson teaches in the culinary arts program at Commonwealth College. Founded as Patal Vocational School, the school serves students whose life circumstances can make it difficult to conform to the structural demands of more traditional universities or colleges. Part of what we do here uh, at Commonwealth, we have uh, an Indigenous student base. We also have some international students. Um, so part of our program here is Indigenous food research and development um, with what's around and what, what can we do. The, the other part of it is that we try to do the next step. So what that means is 1491, they did it one way. Um, then over the next few decades, it slowed down and then it really basically stopped, right, with the European influence. So. Uh, when it comes to Italian food or French food or Japanese or Chinese, they've had hundreds of years since then to develop their food culture. Indigenous people have not. It basically stopped. Um, so we're not necessarily saying we only do what they did. We only use the ingredients they used. But what would they have done in 500 years? What would they have developed? What would they have tried out right, in different ways? Sourcing some of these ingredients can be difficult. Some animals, like bison, are now farmed. These undergo health inspection prior to sale to the public. Other, wilder ingredients are much harder to get a hold of. So bison, elk uh, we can get, certain types of venison we can get, um, but there are times when, like moose, can't get moose. 
like that's like we've used it. We just did it uh, last week. We did a moose stew with um, uh, fried wild rice. We fried it in cranberries and onions and duck fat. These sorts of experiments with uninspected but traditional meat are not done for public consumption due to provincial health regulations that prevent it being served. Watson is unable to offer moose as he cannot find any that have been inspected. And moose are too big and require too much land to graze to ever become a viably farmed animal. Oh, I can't remember his name, but it was hilarious. I was walking out of the school to go get something from my car and I saw him walking by with a big garbage bag on his shoulder. And he's like, hey Steve, how's it going? And I was like, oh yeah, it's going good, whatever. And I go, my car come back in and he's in the kitchen on the garbage bags on the table and he opens it up and it's a caribou leg and it's still got leaves on it. Like it's, and it was like, that's definitely not federally inspected, but still, you know, we did, we made some sausage and stuff for it and showed the students some things and whatnot. So. Historically, the Canadian state played an active role in restricting the ability of Indigenous peoples from earning a living from food production. They did so in order to prevent economic competition with the European settlers they brought by the thousands to Western Canada to farm. The construction of the Canadian Pacific Railway and the creation of the reserve system devastated the bison population, leading to mass starvation, as James Dashuk outlines in Clearing the Plains. Legislation was passed in 1881 that regulated how, when, and if Indigenous peoples could sell agricultural products. Indigenous peoples in Western Canada, many of whom had farmed for centuries, were denied access to farming equipment under the peasant farming policy of Assistant Indian Commissioner Hayter Reed. And Indigenous peoples on the Pacific coast had their salmon fisheries legally captured by federal fisheries officers to prevent them from competing with sport anglers and commercial canneries. The move away from such regulation of indigenous food production has been very slow. I found with uh, fish, there's a, um, is, near, is it near Gimli? But they're opening a fish plant there. And we were actually going to get involved with that, but then it got delayed and whatnot. But it was going to be a fish plant where the indigenous population could bring the fish they caught to this plant and actually sell it legally. The fish processing plant was to be near St. Laurent on Lake Manitoba and create 100 jobs but its success was contingent on the opening up of the federal single-desk marketing system. If that happened, fishers would have the option of selling to buyers other than the Freshwater Fish Marketing Corporation. But some indigenous fishers, like those of the Norway House Fishermen's Cooperative, feared that would end their ability to earn a living from fishing. Indigenous people involved in food production continue to be affected by larger economic and political forces. Uh, whereas here, like back to the moose, um, as hard as somebody might fight, we're going to need a push from somebody else who has power. Maybe money, maybe a demand, maybe if Costco came out and said, hey, we want to sell a million dollars worth of moose in a year, they might have the funds and the resources to push that through and get something done there. Um, but that, I don't see that happening much because uh, even bison's taking a long time. Like bison itself is close to beef. It's not super gamey. It's, you can actually cut, make a, a bison prime rib roast and cut that like beef and it's fantastic. And bison tenderloin is fantastic. But even that's been, I think we just really started to get kind of popular when I was at a place called Green Gates. And that was 20 years ago. The various regulations that control how and where Indigenous food can be produced for public consumption occasionally work in Watson's favour, however. We've done events at other places like Canadians and whatnot. We technically, that's not allowed. You're not, you can't bring in five to nine to do a catering at Canadians. 
um, health reasons plus uh, business reasons, but also but because uh, there's exemptions for uh, ethnic foods. So we fall under ethnic food. Wow. Yeah, I know, it's kind of funny. Yeah, so we fall under the ethnic uh, regulations. So we can go in there and do the food legally because we're ethnic. And meanwhile, we're actually far more local than Canadians is, right? Indigenous peoples on this continent had developed complex agricultural systems prior to European contact. They were building clam gardens more than 3,500 years ago on the western coast. The Three Sisters, a system of interplanting corn, beans and squash, yielded more energy and protein from the land than did monoculture planting. In fact, indigenous farming techniques were more productive than those of either settler grain farmers or Europeans in the 17th and 18th centuries. Quite sophisticated for thousands of years ago. Um, so we figure that they would have done certain things like maybe what we're doing here, um, like taking potatoes and squishing them and frying them in duck fat, you know, reducing sauces for more flavor or adding, you know, certain herbs and different things to foods, like we're gonna add, uh, we're gonna burn some sage and that's gonna be a garnish for our stew because uh, it, it burnt sage is uh, traditional and smudging. So we kind of take that and apply it to actual food and we add a bit of an emotional side, a bit of a spiritual side as well. Chef Watson consults with indigenous elders about whether it's appropriate for him to use sage and other traditional plants in these ways. For indigenous students, this culinary usage can be very meaningful because of the connection to smudging. So I find this a very interesting that yeah. your, your approach is part creative, yeah, yeah. part historical research, yeah. and part consultations with community elders, yeah. um, and particularly what you were mentioning about sage. Yeah. So are there other aspects of cooking that have a spiritual component for you or for those in your community? Tobacco is another one, and we use that often. It's actually a little bit in there. Um, what we do is uh, same idea for smudgings and whatnot. And actually, um, the three sisters I mentioned it used to be the four sisters because tobacco was part of it. But tobacco is more of a uh, spiritual side, not really a food, right? So it was often not ignored, but it was pushed to the wayside in terms of food. So it became the three sisters. Um, so what we'll do often is actually make things um, with the four sisters. Sage has significance in many indigenous cultures in present-day Canada. Sage is the sacred plant that Nanabojo was given to address his fears, and it is a traditional medicine burned in smudging ceremonies. It can be particularly emotional. And then, we have some fun. So part of this, again, is to bring another aspect of what um, cultures have done is they bring emotion into food. Emotion is tied to food. Food's tied to emotion, smells. You smell something that reminds you of your grandmother 40 years ago, or you smell something that reminds you of a dinner you had somewhere else, whatever, and it's tied to that. So if we can burn some sage and it brings somebody back to something, we're doing something that people love. Modern techniques, modern presentation, but pre-contact ingredients. Watson notes that the recent culinary trend of molecular gastronomy plays with scents. He mentions that the Chicago restaurant Alinea, for example, uses particular scents to evoke particular times and locations while also adding a subtle taste. Let me burn some sage. Watson burns sage, 
and wafts its smoke over the slow-roasted bison. It's funny because I was doing this before I read about that, and so I was like, hey, that's kind of what we do too. All right, so it adds flavor by adding something that you don't even really eat. Right? So a smell is more tied to flavor and what we love than taste is. Smell is evocative of memory, Reimagining indigenous cuisine, reconnecting with pre-contact ingredients, can be a way of sharing memories, of recovering history that was disrupted by colonialism. Um, my grandmother is a Sinclair, or was a Sinclair, so she's, uh, and I didn't know it at all. She was raised Catholic, uh, just before the 60s scoop, um, so residential school and all kinds of things there. She was never one of the sad, sad stories. Um, there's a lot of terrible stories, but she was, you know, she was taken away from her family and that's a bad part, but she, the school was fine. They treated her nicely and all that kind of stuff. So she was okay in that sense. But I knew more about Catholicism. I grew up going to, in Thompson, didn't grow up in Thompson, but I was uh, lived in Thompson for a big chunk of my life. And that's where uh, uh, we went to church every Sunday. We went to midnight mass on Christmas Eve. And even in the city here, when she moved to the city, years after my parents did, it was, we'd go to her place for Christmas Eve and then she'd take us all to, to midnight mass and whatnot. And then realized just the past few years ago that there's a reason why, right? Uh, that I don't know indigenous side is because she didn't. It was taken. So what can we do to give that back a little bit? And this is part of it is that because I'm not, uh, I'm not in politics, I'm not, um, you know, I'm not, I am a teacher, but in food, I'm not that type of, a, you know, a college professor or anything like that. What can we do? And this is part of it, is this we can give back to, we can do more and we can give some education about this that is sorely lacking. The impact of colonialism on Indigenous people in Canada is ongoing. Canada's first Indian residential school took in students in 1834. By the 1960s, there were more than 90 such schools across Canada. Thousands of Indigenous children who were compelled by the state to attend these schools never made it out alive. Many children suffered physical or sexual abuse at these schools. Some were subjected to nutritional experiments without their consent or knowledge. These children were separated from their families, their languages, their spiritual practices, and their culture, with significant consequences for subsequent generations. These impacts persist long after the closure of the last residential school in 2000 the federal government's apology in 2008, and the release of the final report of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission in 2015. Um, kind of giving back to, I guess, uh, my grandmother. I'm not even a spiritual person myself, but I feel like I owe something because she lost that part. Um, it's not like she led a bad life because of it, but she missed something that she might have wanted a piece of her, right? So, and my whole family lost that too. Through his cooking, Watson is not trying to revive a pre-contact cuisine, but imagine how it would have developed in a modern context if the process of its development had not been interrupted by the colonial state. The goal is not to produce food that is of interest solely to historians, but food that people will enjoy. I find this very interesting. So much historical cooking, the focus is on authenticity, whatever the heck that means, and not so much on does anyone now actually want to eat this yeah. stuff. Yeah. And so the way you, you are combining these two is really very interesting. And I had a fascination with that in the, uh, the historical side and doing things that way. I bought a book, Historical Heston Blumenthal, it's called, and he would do the dish. He would do it both ways, and that's what I really start, that's kind of what I applied here, is he would take a uh, steak and kidney pie and literally do it from a 17th century recipe, the exact same way in the exact same style of oven and pan and all that kind of stuff. 
and then he would do the, the, do it the way he would do it in his restaurant. Chef Watson would like to do more to educate the public about this approach to indigenous cooking, but it is much more expensive to prepare bison reductions than to make a roux with butter and flour to thicken a sauce. While Commonwealth College does catering at cost, not everyone can afford to pay for the ingredients used. This has somewhat limited Watson's reach. So sometimes there's frustration in that. Hopefully some of it's becoming a little bit better, but for the most part you see food just going up and up and up, right? So basically uh, even pickerel right now used to be dirt cheap. It's even $5 a pound is ridiculously low. So now you're getting 10 to $15 a pound. So yeah, no, there's definitely that part because the frustration is the business side. If we had, you know, a backer who had millions of dollars and just wanted to spread the word and didn't care how much it cost, we would just be doing this all over the damn place, right? Um, but yeah, so, but when the goal is education, the business side interferes, right? Watson has many menu ideas and many dreams. Pickerel with sumac and wild chives, served on a wild rice cake with potato and duck fat and onion. Cooking indigenous cuisine over open fires at Spirit Island at the Forks in Winnipeg. Growing native plants in Assiniboine Park. Serving his 1491 menu as a guest chef at Raw Almond, the winter pop-up restaurant on the frozen junction of the Red and Assiniboine Rivers. His creativity and ambition match that of some of the world's top chefs, like René Redzepi at Noma in Copenhagen. But Watson also has a mission. There's a lot of parallels here between you and some place like Noma, yeah. except that this is better, <laughs> right? In that Noma's trying to like uh, experiment and recover local foods, yeah. but there isn't also an historical and a justice component yeah. in quite the same way. No, and uh, that's um, when I was saying that a lot of kitchens have the strict research center. That's that's one of them. Is that um, they for six months out of the year, they do nothing but test. And I follow them on Instagram and stuff, and they often will just show stuff from the, the testing kitchen. Um, but yeah, and it's kind of similar in that way. They very much uh, local. They'll use foods that uh, people didn't know were foods. A key difference, of course, is that Noma's René Redzepi has no problem finding backers willing to fund such experimentation. René Redzepi, he has basically unlimited. He can go to anybody with money and say, give me money and they'll give it to him. I would if I had money. If I won a Super 7 lottery or whatever it's called now, Automax, I would I'd probably fund something like that myself just for the ability to go and actually do it with them or try it out or whatever, right? So, so hopefully there's somebody like that here. Not necessarily uh, you know, one really rich guy, but a band or a, a subsidy or, you know, even if we could, somebody in the government could subsidize so it becomes the same price as regular foods or whatever, right? So we could, that buys and costs the same as beef instead of whatever, we can get something there, whether it's government or individual or a group of people or a band, just to spread that information. Because like I said, it's not a, uh, I wouldn't be starting this to, you know, to make money, it's, I'd easily make more money just by opening a restaurant that sells burgers. <laughs> I can do pretty good burgers. Uh, I was the I did the burger at uh, Brazen Hall that one burger week, uh, not last, this past year, but the year before. Um, so I mean, I could do those things, right? And this is not going to fly like a burger. This is not going to do. Uh, we're not going to have a a week like they have Fried Chicken Week or Burger Week. We're not going to do that in the next 20, 30 years. It may take decades, but Watson is in this for the long haul. As part of Commonwealth College's Culinary Arts Program. He has opened teaching kitchens on reserves in Sioux Lookout, St. Teresa Point, and Wasagamac to train Indigenous youth. These young chefs will teach people the history of Indigenous food and join Watson in reimagining it for the future. Well, we want to tie some emotion in there too because that's a big part of Indigenous food. 
um, emotional and spiritual. So, uh, so if we can do that, we will. At the same time, something that people would want to eat. Not something that, oh, that's good for 500 years old, but no, that's really good, regardless of if they know the story behind it. You've been listening to Preserves, a Manitoba food history podcast produced by myself, Kent Davies, written and narrated by Janice Deason. Hosted by Janice Deason and myself, our theme music is by Robert Canning. Preserves is recorded at the University of Winnipeg Oral History Center. You can check out the OHC and all the work that we do at oralhistorycenter.ca. For more Manitoba Food History Project content, information, and events, go to manitobafoodhistory.ca. We're also on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. If you have a Manitoba food story and you want to share, contact us by clicking on the contact link on our website. Preserves is made possible by a grant from the Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council of Canada. Thanks for listening.